0: Well, uh, those of you who have been with us yesterday uh, are very familiar with our speaker. I know a number of you are uh, coming for this morning. Our speaker this morning has, uh, and this weekend, is Kirby Anderson, a graduate of Oregon State and uh, graduate of Yale and Georgetown University, author of more than a dozen books and the radio on some 280 radio stations. Having uh, his uh, uh, radio commentary and a call in, question and answer. And we've been very, very blessed with his ministry, helping us to understand and see the world from a biblical point of view. And this morning, especially, we are uh, uh, blessed to have him as he's going to be speaking on the subject of media. And just again, I want to remind you, we've asked him to do a special session at 2 o'clock, which is a half hour after our camp photo, on um, Heaven is for Real and also what is happening in terms. Of uh, Libya and the Middle East, and uh, we've asked him to scrunch that all in within an hour. But you know, as he mentioned, he can uh, explain things very quickly for us. Whether or not we understand it all at the same time, another question. But let's give him a warm welcome as he comes today.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And which one? About I guess. There we go. Well, this is a wonderful time to gather together. Did everybody enjoy breakfast today? We've eaten pretty well, and Suzanne and I went for a long walk. Didn't see too many other people out there walking with us, but uh, we certainly had a chance to uh, uh, camp as the grounds a couple of times. And when we first started out, we were hearing owls, and by the time we were done, it was crows. So, I mean, that gives you a little bit of an idea of some of the walking, and we really do enjoy camp. I appreciate all the fun things that we're hearing from the kids and their experiences. And so we're going to spend some time this morning talking about media, and I hope that this will be of interest to you, it again is one of those controversial topics they selected when you think about it, they've uh, pretty much focused on nothing but controversy this weekend you know, politics tonight uh, the media, uh, what's happening in terms of postmodernism, and then a little bit later we're going to talk about economics, so by it's through I'm sure I will have offended everybody on at least one topic so that's kind of our goal here to uh, get us thinking a little bit about these issues, maybe pushing us off of a routine, and for those of you that are parents that are a little bit concerned about the impact that media might be having on you or on your children, I think I'm going to give you lots of ammunition in that regard. But let me begin by trying to even understand why this is important. When I do speak sometimes for like Worldview Weekend, Almost always they ask me to speak to the young people about media. And the reason I say that is there is a lot of evidence that has come in from lots of different quarters that it is having a very profound impact. George Barna is somebody I enjoy interviewing on radio quite often, and a number of years ago he put together what were called SSIs. Those are sources of significant influence. What is having an impact in your life? What is changing your worldview? What is having an influence? Informing forming the values and ideas of uh, the various uh, people. Do do we need to move my microphone or something? I saw somebody going like that. we okay? We're good. Okay. Um, And uh, he actually began to identify what were called the sources of significant influence and concluded that the sources of significant influence were movies, television, the Internet, books, music, public policy and law, and family. Now, that was almost in the order in which he found them, but what he was actually identifying is that when we talk about the profound influences that we have in the world today, you can see that those first five all relate in one way or another to media. And so these are becoming the primary sources of influence in our society. Now, when he published this in Christianity Today, the next point I'm going to put up there generated an enormous number of uh, letters to the editor and controversy because he concluded that using his study that the church was not even in the top 12 sources of influence. Now, he's talking about in the society in general. I would imagine the church is very influential in your life, but when we talk about the influence in society, it was much further down. Well, let's just imagine we could go back in time. You know, this uh, camp has been here for uh, more than 30 years or 50 years. I think uh, there was a camp even before Camp Baraka came here that was here. So let's imagine we could go back 50 years in time. You know, it would be worth just seeing what it looked like back in, say, 1961. And for the kids, we'll do it back to the future style. We'll park a DeLorean out here. And we'll have Doc come out here and program it in for September 3rd, okay, 1961. We <sighs> do down the road. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves back in 1961. And we do the same survey. Do you think the numbers would be the same? I don't think so. What do you think would be maybe the top two? I'm thinking church and family would probably be there. If we go back 70 years, I'm sure of it. You go back 100 years, there's no doubt about that. But you got to realize that a lot of the things on there, the internet didn't exist back in 1961, right? Uh, Music, in order to listen to music, you had to have those records. Kids, these were big things like CDs, you know, and you put them. Okay, Uh, you know, and there were just uh, there was not the media influence that there is today. And so, in some respects, you can see that the world has changed dramatically. Church and family. I don't know if it was family or church, church and family, but those probably were in the top two or three. They are today. And I think it illustrates exactly one of the concerns that I have. I suggest, and you will see as you look at your handout today in the middle, if you turn the page, one of the things I'm going to ask you during the discussion time is to talk about the media storm. So as we break up in discussion later on, you can either have discussion questions from last night on postmodernism and relativism or on the media. I'm sure you could do whatever you want. But I want to talk for just a minute about the media storm that young people are growing up in, which is unprecedented let's look at television for just a minute and what I will do through this is probably use television as a typical example if for no other reason than televisions are found in most American homes not all of your homes I suspect but certainly in most but if you look at what happens by the time a typical student graduates from high school he or she will have seen 22,000 hours of television to put that in perspective they will have only sat in a classroom about 11,000 hours So you can begin to see that that is an enormous number. Now I can see the look on some of your faces going, "Ah, I can't believe that, you know. I'll go to the mat on that number. And the reason for that is the A.C. Nielsen Company spends millions and millions of dollars to find out which TVs are on, what channel they're tuned to, and who's watching them. It's a pretty solid number. A lot of social statistics are pretty fuzzy. This one is not one of those. And just look at the fact that when we just start with the issue of television, we recognize that it is a very profound source of influence in our world today. Okay, well, I've got some teenagers here. They probably say, well, I watch some TV, but I like to listen to music. Well, this study is a little more questionable, but uh, it still comes from a very good source, and that is the Journal of the American Medical Association, doing interviews and diaries, concluded that just during their teen years, the typical American teenager listens to 10,500 hours of music. Or i just rounded up to about 11,000 hours. And by the way, that study was done before the total market penetration of the iPod. I suspect those numbers might go up now. You notice how many young people have things in their ears all the time? You know, and so again, that's another profound source of influence. Well, there's another one now. Computers. And uh, it is harder to get this number, but uh, studies done at the University of California, at San Diego, and other places watching people setting up webcams and doing interviews have concluded that maybe by the time a typical high school senior graduates, he or she will have been on the computer on the internet, either through computers or smartphones or other devices, maybe as much as 13,000 hours. Which, if you start adding up to hours, you're saying, you know, wait a minute, we're running out of waking hours. That's because there's the thing known as multitasking. The television's on, listen to the iPod, doing my homework while I'm checking my Facebook, and also leaving some messages for other people on my smartphone, right? Are we with me? Parents, shake your head yes. Kids are going, oh, don't say this because that's not what I wanted to hear. What's so interesting is the amount of internet use has gone up every single year for two reasons. First of all, because of those devices. A little bit later we'll talk about smartphones and everything else. But also, just think about it. The students that just graduated from high school, say last year, they were probably born in, what, about 1992, 93. There wasn't a lot of internet penetration at that time. Al Gore hadn't invented it yet. So, I mean, we didn't have... Just just kidding, just kidding. But, you know, so you can see that those numbers go up because... Now at younger and younger ages they have a chance to get on. Well, we can add some other things, video games. If there's one thing that really has marked the so-called millennial generation, those born between 1980 and 2000 and even afterwards, are those individuals who actually have actually cut their teeth on video games. And it's one thing that is definitely identified with that generation. You can add to that movies and videos and DVDs. One of our associates a while back uh, made a statement that uh, the average young person listen, or watches six movies a week. And I'm going, no, no, no. You, you, that number can't even be in the right order of magnitude. And then all of a sudden I was realizing I was dating myself. Because I was thinking, you know, in my day, the only way you could see six movies a week is go to the double feature three times, right? <laughs> But what he meant is, yes, they go to the movies, but the movies come to them. They're watching DVDs, they're on television, and all a lot of. And I thought, still, the number sounds high, but it just illustrates again what is happening in our world. You add books and magazines and newspapers and all the rest, and you realize we are living in a time of a media storm. This is unprecedented in Western civilization. This is unprecedented in the history of the world. We are wired in in ways that never existed before. Uh, You know, when I was growing up, I would uh, go to school, but then when I would leave school, it was sort of like a respite from that. You know, I sort of got away from the peer pressure, the clicks, and all that kind of stuff. But now, with computers and with smartphones and Facebook and MySpace, uh, the typical teenager's bedroom is oftentimes like a 24-7 news Bureau, They're always in contact, and it's a very different kind of world than the world that many of us may have grown up in. Well, I want to try to spend some time talking about media in general, but then I'll come back and use television. If for no other reason than television is the most ubiquitous form of media today, even with the advent of all the smartphones and everything, more homes have television sets than even have indoor plumbing. There's a punchline there, but I'll leave that alone. But nevertheless, let's if we talk, come back and talk about television for just a minute to illustrate that point. Because we pointed out that by the time a typical teenager graduates from high school, he or she will have seen, as we said, 22,000 hours of television. But up until now, I've really just talked about the sheer quantity of media input, haven't I? We haven't talked about the quality of that media input. During that same period of time, they will have seen about 16,000 televised homicides. That's a level of visual violence that people have never experienced. Granted, I understand watching it on television is not the same in experiencing it in life, but still, this is something very, very different. And those studies came out really before the advent of a lot of these CSI programs, which I think will probably up the numbers even more. More than that, about 200,000 acts of violence on television that they will see during that period of time and so you have to understand that it's having a much more dramatic and significant impact than we might imagine and just one more fun statistic they will during that period of time seen six hundred and forty thousand television commercials now some television commercials are kind of fun but obviously they also play upon our inadequacies and many times they try to suggest that we need certain kinds of material goods to be successful anyway you can kind of see the concern that people are having people in the business recognize that uh, even though they appreciate producing these programs, they're very concerned about the impact that they are having. Last week, I spent some time with an individual who was the head of the Christian Television and Film Commission. I guess it's called the Christian Film and Television Commission. But, um, you know, he has been in the media for some time. I'm in the media. And if you think I'm against media, no. I mean, I certainly encourage people to go to websites, listen to radio programs, watch TV programs, and all the rest. But the point I'm making is, is that the level of media input... And the immediate storm that we are raising our children and grandchildren in is, again, unprecedented. And something we've just got to begin to think about. Okay, how do we think about this? How do we develop a Christian mind? You know, when I go to the Bible, I don't see words like DVD, iPod, anything in there, right? Neither do you. But, you know, let's turn to a couple of passages, if you have your Bible. else I'll put them on the screen here. But 2 Timothy 2, verse 22 Here, Paul is writing to Timothy, perhaps the last letter he ever wrote, certainly the last letter that we have recorded that he wrote to Timothy. He's kind of concluding now some of his responsibilities and actions. And here, he now tells him to flee from youthful lusts. He's concerned that this young individual might uh, be influenced by that. He also wants him as an individual who's going to be planting churches to really think about being aware of the dangerous influence even of the first century in terms of materialism, sensuality, false teaching, and the like. And so if that was true in the first century, how much more true is it in the 21st century? But as Paul oftentimes does, as soon as he says what to avoid... He then tells you what to pursue, and that is you flee from youthful lust, but you do what? You pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. So first of all, it seems to me that we should be thinking about what comes in our eye gate and our ear gate and begin to evaluate that and have a level of discernment. Another one, we looked at uh, Colossians 2.8 last night. Let's look at Colossians 3.8. And here he says, but now you must rid yourselves of all these such things, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Now, would that mean that I could never read something that has anger in it? Well, no, the Bible has anger in it. That's not the point. But the point is, is that if indeed you allow those things into your life and it has an impact in your life, a wise and discerning Christian is going to obviously reevaluate the things that are in your life. Those of us that um, have ever done computer programming know the old phrase garbage in, garbage out. And filthy language is a good example. I've sometimes spoken at Christian schools and I'll ask the kids, if uh, the teacher's out of the room, okay, how many of you kids, let's be real honest here, you know, I'm not going to tattle on you, but how many of you have used a bad word recently? It's amazing how many hands go up. And so I ask, okay, where, where did you learn those words? You know, did your did your teacher talk like that? Oh, no. Did your pastor talk like that? No. Do your parents talk like that? No. Where do you hear it? Mm, television, movies, you know, media, in other words. You know, comes in comes back out and so again it's important for us to think about what is coming into our lives through our eye gate and our ear gate moreover the verse I looked at last night uh, reminds us that we should look at those things and we should focus on those things which are true and noble and right and pure and lovely and certainly uh, be concerned about uh, what we are putting into our minds and the impact that it's having on our lives One last one, uh, Romans 13, verse 13. Here he says, Let us behave decently in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, nor in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Well, I can give you a lot more verses, and I have a whole chapter in my book, Christian Ethics in Plain Language, on media. You can go to our website and get lots of articles on media. But uh, whether you look at a whole series of verses or anything, I think you can come to one very obvious conclusion. When we're talking about media, the key word that we're going to be talking about this morning is what? discernment. We need to have discernment. Now, again, some of you might say, after I hear this message, we're just pulling all the electronics out of our house. But, you know, I doubt that's going to happen. Uh, Suzanne grew up around Mennonites and we do, you know, know a few Amish None of you look like you're Amish. None of you look like you're going to go that direction. Most of you are pretty high-tech. So it seems to me that, yes, you're going to have to say, all right, this is part of the life that we're in. And frankly, the Amish and the Mennonites even now are finding that even when they try to pull back from the world, the world is coming their direction. You know, it's just the world that we find ourselves in. And if there is anything we need now, it is a great deal of Christian discernment. Okay, well, how do we get Christian discernment? Well, a couple of suggestions. Three simple steps, I would have to say, for Christian discernment. The first is to stop. That is, stop what you're doing long enough to concentrate. If you're going to develop discernment, you need to be asking, what's coming into my mind right now? And the sad reality is, is that oftentimes, we just simply allow this media storm to just kind of envelop us, and we don't really even evaluate it. And so the first thing you need to do is stop long enough to concentrate on what's happening. In the old days, you used to come home and I'd say, Hi kids, I'm home. Kids, I'm home. Hello kids. I'd grab the remote control, click, click, turn the TV off. And there's sort of this blink, blink. Oh, hi dad. There, We didn't know you were home. What's going on there? The phenomena known as TV zombies, right? <laughs> And so, you know, a lot of us just kind of grew up with media. I've had young people say, you know, I can't study in a quiet room. I'm so used to having music in my life. I'm so used to having the television on. And so the first real important step in having discernment is to stop. This is another benefit, by the way, of Christian camps. You know, we've kind of disconnected from the world. And it kind of helps you realize, you know, I really can survive without turning the TV on, without checking my iPhone every few minutes, and all of those kinds of issues. And again, it's important to stop long enough to concentrate. Number two, that is listen. That is give attention to what is entering your mind. Again, we allow a lot of it just to sort of come in and affect us, but we really don't stop and really listen to what's being said. Years ago, we used to do a talk with all sorts of multimedia, and maybe we'll come back to it again sometime in the future, which was called Between Rock and a Hard Place. And we would do it for all these youth groups, you know, just talking about rock music and the contemporary music scene and things like that. And what we would find is oftentimes we'd play some of the music uh, in the background as everybody was coming in, and then sometimes we'd even have them, uh, you know, identify the song, and someone would even sing along with the song. And so then we'd pop up on the screen the lyrics and do kind of an exegesis, of the lyrics you know and more often than not I'd have teenagers go wow I didn't know it said that I said you just sang the song you know even today when we were singing some of these hymns and some of this contemporary music how many of you were really focusing on the words Some of us were. Some of us were just singing the words. It's easy because we live in this media storm. We don't even concentrate long enough to really give attention to what is coming into your mind. So stop, listen. Number three, that is look. That is look at the consequences of entertainment in your life. I think it is important to recognize that, and I will show in just a minute, evidence that indeed the, what you see, read, and hear does have an impact on you. Your worldview is shaped by many things. And it is shaped certainly by the sermons you hear in church. It's shaped by the things that you read in the newspaper and in books. It's shaped by the commercials you see. It's shaped by the programs you watch. It's shaped by the movies you go to. It's shaped by the websites you go to, the music you listen to. It's affected by a lot of things. And a wise and discerning Christian would look at that and say, this might not have the most positive impact on my life. We have a lot of young people today that grow up saying, you know, it really doesn't affect me. And a while back when I was speaking at a Worldview weekend, this one girl was really making a case that, you know, none of this really affects me. You know, I can go to movies and it doesn't have any impact at all. And so I said, well, have you ever gone to a movie maybe with somebody that doesn't watch a lot of media? Maybe you've got a friend that's a homeschool friend. She said, oh, yeah, I cannot tell you. We went to this one horror film. And as soon as the first scary thing happened, she goes, ah! You know, and the entire movie theater looked around like, what was wrong with her? And I said... I don't think anything was wrong with her. Maybe everything was wrong with everybody else in the movie theater. And she got it. You know, I've been so used to seeing that. I was just, oh, no big deal. You know, a little blood, little scary guy. But she really was the innocent person. She was the one that had not been changed and affected by all the things that the others had seen on the screen. And she began to realize, yeah, it was having an impact in her life. Let's talk about the impact of the media in just a minute. In my book, I go into this in a lot of detail, but I'll just give you three points real quickly. But first of all, I think you would have to argue that the media oftentimes presents an unreal view of the world. Here's a newsflash. Reality TV is not reality. Reality TV is not reality. (laughs) And oftentimes you have this idea that I'm really seeing the way it happened. No, camera angles are chosen, cuts are made. As a matter of fact, there are all sorts of people that are finding out that some of these reality TV shows are scripted almost as much as a a commercial venture. But more than that, oftentimes it presents a very unreal view of the world, one-dimensional characters, predictable plots. Everybody's major traumas resolved within a half an hour sitcom or an hour sitcom. Life is a lot more complicated than that. Number two, the media presents an oversimplified view of the world, a very predictable one, which I think has caused real concerns. There have been people that have even said that uh, individuals that watch lots of television are less likely to seek counseling, because after all, the people on television can solve all their problems in a half an hour. Certainly, I can solve them myself. You know, just begin to see how that's even affected our behavior in certain ways. And probably most significant, as relevant to the illustration I just gave you a minute ago, the media de- desensitizes its viewers you know those kids in that movie were pretty much desensitized today's shocker is tomorrow's ho-hum today's scandal is just old news tomorrow and so this is a real concern that people have about the influence of media again a wise and discerning christian wants to apply a christian mind and discernment to begin to understand the impact that it might have in your life Well, let's look at some possible ways in which uh, we do see an impact again on our websites and even in my book we have lots of examples so I'm going to pick one in the interest of time but uh, this study was uh, known oftentimes as the scary world of the heavy TV viewer because that's what it was called in psychology today but It was part of a larger study by George Gerbner and Larry Gross at the University of Pennsylvania Annenberg School of Communication and what they did was they looked at uh, heavy TV viewers and compared them to average Americans and they found a couple of interesting things. People that watch lots of television, that is heavy TV viewers, tended to overestimate, as a matter of fact, vastly overestimate their likelihood of being involved in a violent crime. Can you think why? Well, they saw violence on the screen, and so they tended to live in a much scarier world. Uh, So again, they tended to overestimate their likelihood of being involved in a violent crime number two we found also that they tended to overestimate the percentage of people in white-collar occupations in professions why because most people on television are in you know professional situations and so again they were not actually living quite in a real world and the third is that they found that they also overestimated the percentage of Americans compared to the rest of the world why because most of the people they saw on television were Americans Now, the point I'm making here is not that it is absolutely essential that you walk out here knowing the exact percentage of Americans compared to the rest of the world. But what I am saying is, is if I can show that when I look at statistics which can be easily verifiable, For example, your likelihood of being involved in a violent crime, the percentage of people in white-collar occupations, the percentage of Americans compared to the rest of the world. Now, if I can show you those things are skewed because of watching lots of television, would it not make sense that other things that are harder to measure, sinful behavior, sensuality, materialism, covetousness, those would be skewed as well? Could that make sense to you? And I think that is the exact point I'm trying to make, is that people that sit there and say, well, television really doesn't have an impact, I always am amazed at that. As a matter of fact, recently I was just talking with our guy with the Christian Film and Television Commission. It's amazing how many times TV executives will say, "You know, I don't think our television programs affect behavior," and you just have to laugh at that, because you know you um, charge advertisers an enormous amount of money. The last Super Bowl that they had in Dallas. They were charging a million and a half dollars for a 30-second commercial so that if you see a swoosh, that'll make you want to go and buy Nike. Right? Think about that for just a minute. And you can't tell me that the six minutes of of commercials affect consumer behavior, but the 24 minutes of programming don't affect behavior at all. You see the point? Obviously, it's having an impact. And I think it's important to understand that there are all sorts of studies that really do demonstrate what you see on television can really have an impact. Now, again, I've just used television, but we can do this for every form of media. When we talk about teenagers, there have been some studies that have come out more recently by the Journal of Pediatrics. Now, the American Society of Pediatricians are made up of all sorts of individuals. matter of fact, you're a local pediatrician. You might be a Christian. But I know enough about the board of the, journal, of the American Academy of Pediatrics to know it's not made up of too many Bible-believing people. So when they make these statements, and they're not exactly coming from a Christian perspective, Okay. And so in 2004 the Journal of Pediatrics found that a study of adolescents that watched sex on television were more likely to be involved sexually. In other words, seeing sex on television increased their likelihood of being sexually involved. We recently had another one came out that said those who watched lots of television and lots of sexual images also had the women, young ladies I should say, had a more likely, a greater likelihood I should say of actually becoming pregnant. Another study they did was one that came out a couple of years before. It was actually a meta-study of over a thousand different studies, three of which were done by three different attorney generals of the United States, in which they found a causal connection between media and aggressive behavior in some children. Now, they've got to put the weasel words in there because they don't want to say that if you watch lots of violent television, you're going to be the next axe murderer or serial killer. But the point is is they saw a very definite correlation. I recognize correlation is not causation, but we have lots of longitudinal studies that seem to show the very same thing. Leonard Aaron at the University of Illinois did studies of eight-year-olds in which he watched uh, the behavior of eight-year-olds after having correlated how much violent programming they saw on television, and he saw a very definite correlation between watching violence on television and then all sorts of schoolyard incidents, hitting, kicking, slapping, those kinds of things. Then he followed those same students now 10 years later now they're 18 years of age and looking at the correlation of having seen violent program and then whether or not they were juvenile delinquents whether or not they had had any kind of run in with the law and then he followed them 10 years after that 28 years of age looking as to whether or not there were allegations of spousal abuse or other kinds of run ins with the law and he saw some very definite correlations it shouldn't surprise us because you know what it says in Proverbs as a man thinketh in his heart so is he what you think is going to affect the way you behave. In a sense, you think about it's head, heart, hands. If your heart is thinking biblically, I mean, your head's thinking biblically, your heart's going to be biblical, and you're going to do biblical things. But if your head and your ideas are influenced by the world, then you're going to have a worldly set of motivation, and you're going to act differently. Well, let's, if we can now for just a minute, add a section that I put in after we talked about uh, doing this because I thought we might have a few young people around here. And because I'm in one of the most high-tech regions of the country, I would imagine probably more of you and your kids and grandkids have been involved in personal technology than if I were speaking to this, say, in the backwoods of Alabama. So I'm thinking that this is a whole new area of study. And what I'm going to share with you now is actually, again, a whole week of radio program we've done. I'm just picking out a couple of stories, but if you want to read more about that, follow the uh, footnotes and read more about it. Again, that's available on our website. But first of all, we can talk about these social networks, MySpace and Facebook. And I think first of all, we have to say that they're really a tremendous blessing because it helps us keep track of people that do not live near us. I know what's going on in the lives of, you know, missionaries and old school friends, and I see pictures and other things that I would never see before so certainly that is a positive but some people have said well this is just great community it creates all sorts of community and I like Sean Hipps he wrote this book called Flickering Pixels and he said this about virtual communities It's virtual, but it ain't community. Um, You know, this idea that, well, we're all in community because we see each other in Facebook. No, there's a place for gathering together in the church, gathering together, meeting people face to face. But at the same time, we have to understand that uh, there are some strengths and weaknesses. One of the others is I think that uh, Facebook and MySpace and others can be a very significant evangelistic outreach because this book that came out called Connected talked about the uh, idea that as we look at the surprising power of these social networks we find that many characteristics are contagious that is sometimes we're influenced not just by our friends but our friends friends so while I think we can see that social networks could be a force for good it could also be a force for ill it could be a force to actually share the gospel and really cause people to reevaluate their priorities but it also could be something that drives in the other direction That's kind of typical of technology, isn't it? The tree of technology has both sweet fruits and bitter fruits. And here, again, Connected, this latest book, talks about how influential these social networks have really turned out to be. But on the other hand, you've got to be concerned about whether or not that creates kind of a closed-in view. Rebecca Hagelin has written a book called Home Invasion, and there she talks about how our homes have been invaded by the media, television, computers, and all sorts of other technologies. In a column she wrote recently, by the way, she was vice president of the Heritage Foundation in Washington, D.C., said that young people spend hours every day updating their Facebook pages, post and email countless pictures of themselves, plug their ears with music to create a self-indulgent existence shut off from everyone around them. And so the concern is, is, are young people spending too much time with the media? I think the evidence is that the typical young person is spending entirely too much time in front of a screen, television screen, movie screen, video screen, whatever, computer screen. But also now, just media has come and begun to really take over the lives of a lot of young people. Some other studies have been done. I'll just quote from one that's more of a popular study that caused all sorts of stir a number of years ago. It was called, Is Google Making Us Stupid? And this is by Nicholas Carr, kind of a famous article that started a whole study of, okay, because of the Internet, are we starting to think differently? Is it even affecting the way we perceive the world? And he said, over the past few years, I've had an uncomfortable sense that someone or something has been tinkering with my brain, remapping the neural circuitry and reprogramming the memory and he says you know it used to be that immersing myself in a book or a lengthy article used to be very easy my mind would get caught up in the narrative or the turns of the argument now my concentration often starts to drift after two or three pages and so what he's saying is is there may be a sense in which because of the internet because of this fast-paced mode of communication that it's shrinking our attention span There's a man that wrote a book a number of years ago, and he put it in a format so that you could read each uh, section in the book in about seven minutes. And somebody asked him, why do you have it in seven-minute increments? And he said, because the typical television program has episodes that are about seven minutes long, and that seems to be the attention span now of the American people. We sort of mass program people to pay attention every seven minutes. Now, for Joe, this is not good news if he's thinking about preaching next Sunday. Because he doesn't necessarily want to put this into seven-minute segments. But you can see that even while I've been talking, it's been hard maybe for some of you to focus because we've been programmed almost to not pay attention for long, sustained periods of time. And there are all sorts of studies that have come out to do that. Another one is is that um, Stephen Kotler suggested now because of Twitter, it's reduced the time of concentration to a few words. He says Twitter will tune the brain to reading and comprehending information a 100 times. Forty characters at a time. Can we communicate the gospel in 140 words? Can we explain um, uh, justification by faith in 140 words? Can we explain you know the intricacies of you know the Christian life in 140 words? I think we've got a problem, and it gets back to the fact that even some of this we are wondering if it might be having an impact in the way we actually think and even the kind of attention spans we have. At Tufts University, they say we're not only what we read; we are how we read and right now the internet puts efficiency and immediacy along other factors Uh, people at george mason university said the brain has the ability to reprogram itself on the fly altering the way it functions and that's not only true for our young people here but for older people as well and so are we in this kind of high-tech age losing the ability to really focus and concentrate Uh, what does that mean in terms of our bible studies what does that mean in terms of our day Daily devotions. What does that mean in terms of hearing the word of God from our pastor? These are profound profound questions that people are starting to ask outside the church, but I think we should inside the church be asking the very same questions. Okay, I've gone from preaching the meddling now because I have an iPhone. Some of you have a BlackBerry. But um, there have been some real interesting studies that have come out that say that one of the things that it is doing is that you have the phenomenon where maybe you're focused and then your BlackBerry goes off. It, it buzzes, rings, something like that. And so as a result, you have what's called distraction overload. That is, you go answer the phone and then you come back with, uh, where, where was I? Where, wh- what am I? Now, some of us are old enough, we walk into a room saying, why did I walk into this room? Then <laughs> well, they walk back in and see if I can remember why I walked into this room. Where are my keys? You know, you know, that kind of stuff. But this is, you know, something that's become very concerning because it has affected even the creativity of individuals. These are studies now being done at places like IBM and others where they're saying, you know, is this interruption a good thing for the long term sustainability of an organization that it depends upon the creative concentration of individuals? Because after all, creativity comes in large part, as I'll jump ahead here, to the this idea of daydreaming if you're like me some of the most creative ideas you've ever had maybe for the men when you're shaving for the women when you put on makeup or when you're driving in a car when your mind is kind of in neutral and all of a sudden it connects all sorts of things together but if you're in this constant connectedness to the world you lose some of that creativity now I have some people that say well yeah but I can multitask no, you can't. We've done all sorts of brain studies now that say you're really not multitasking. It's continuous partial attention. It's really not multitasking. It's rapid, rapid fire switching from one to the other. And there were some people that were even asking whether or not we now have the first president has a BlackBerry. President Barack Obama whether or not that would affect it because you know if you've ever had a Blackberry or an iPhone and you're trying to focus and talk to people at the same time you begin to lose concentration and so some people are starting to ask fundamental questions about how productive are people going to be how creative are they going to be and how focused are they going to be with all of these outside distractions one good way to kind of rethink your life is to walk around here away from some of those distractions over this weekend so that you re-enter this busy world to say, maybe I need to change one or two behaviors so that I will be less distracted, more focused, more creative, and certainly more available for what God might have for us to do. Finally, before I move on to another section... I thought it would also address this issue of media addiction. I've mentioned George Barna before. He founded the Barna Group. And a year ago, he actually published a paper called Media Addiction. And I'll be honest with you, we hear so much about addiction. I sort of roll my eyes when I tell you people talking about addiction. Sometimes I think people use addiction to excuse their sin. So when I first saw that, I said, okay, here we go again, media addiction. But I have such respect for George Barna, I started reading the paper. And he starts out basically by showing you all the signs That have been established by the American Psychiatric Association for addiction. Other kinds of addictions, obviously substance addiction. And then he goes back and says, do we not see these very same signs in many people who are addicted to the media? Okay, you got me on that one. All right, you 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 actually now show that this isn't just a flippant uh, term that you are putting out there, but you actually show that some people really are, in a sense, addicted to media. And you can find this whenever once in a while we suggest that people maybe have a, a media fast. You know, I think for some of us, To be honest, it would be easier to fast from food than fast from our iPhones or our Blackberries or our computers or the internet. I mean, that's just, you know, being honest. And at the same time, what we see is that that is having an impact in our world as well. Moreover, he found that in the studies they've done, almost all the parents that he talked to, more than three-fourths of all of them say exposure of their children to inappropriate content is one of their top concerns. Survey after survey, and we just did a survey with the Barna Group, spent tens of thousands of dollars and all sorts of intricate cross surveys to evaluate that and in his surveys he found that almost always one of the top concerns of parents is the exposure of their children to inappropriate content but what he also finds is when he goes back and asks, well, are you the ones that have been buying the video games for your kids, letting them go to these different kinds of movies, letting them watch these various kinds of things, letting them have a TV in their room, letting them have a computer in the room, almost all of them go, well, oh, yeah. So on the one hand, they say, you know, I've got a real problem with what my kids see, read, and hear. But on the other hand, I make it available to them any time they fuss at me long enough and I finally give in. So again, it's something to really reevaluate in terms of our parenting. For just a few minutes, though, I thought I would share a little bit about the millennial generation. We've just finished a study at uh, Probe Ministries with the Barna Group of Millennials. And uh, a lot of this actually comes even from a previous study done by Lifeway. But uh, when we talk about the next generation of leaders in the church, those would be those born between 1980 and 2000. Our studies went all the way to those who were 40, so they would be even born before 1980. But what you found was a couple of things. First of all, millennials, generally, the millennial generation, Accept advances in digital technology as part of their life. For most of us who are adults, we adapted to that. They grew up basically knowing how to do it. The old joke used to be, if you don't know how to program your VCR, just ask a 12-year-old, and they'll be fine with that. I sometimes say to people, if they want to create a video to put on YouTube to promote their book or anything, if you don't know how to do it, just find a 15-year-old in your church, and you're good. Because, you know, they grew up knowing these. What they found is something that shouldn't surprise anyone. With any kind of technology, you have the early adopters, then you have the majority, then you have the laggards. And as you might gather, the millennials are almost all in the early adopters and a few into the um, majority. Also, we asked them, how do you communicate with someone who is not physically present with you? And at the time, this was done a few years ago, it was 39% for phones. 37% for texting, 16% for email. But we found that the younger millennials, it was much higher texting. I think the next time we do the survey, texting is going to be off the charts. You know, that's how they communicate with texting. And that... Question was asked How do you communicate with somebody who's not next to you? I've been in enough restaurants to see four millennials all texting to each other across the table. Have you seen this? You know? So, I mean, it's not just, you know, that I'm texting to somebody across the room. I might be texting to you, you know, rather than talk to you. And this is a question that people have asked Are we so tied to technology? The way we communicate now is we text. And I've seen some young people, when I look at their phone, they are starting to wear the keys off, you know, because they've done that much texting so you can see that some things have changed dramatically just in the last few years now as I mentioned before if there is any generation that has been identified with a particular kind of technology it is video games now obviously the gamers tend to be more male than female but that uh, gap between male and female is starting to close as well and there are some positives for those of you that are interested in video games we did a whole week of radio programs on video games and there are some positives they find that hand-eye coordination is better for gamers than for non-gamers they find that their perception of the world they are more likely to see a, ch- a ball rolling into the uh, street and look for a child that might be following it than a non-gamer so there are some positive aspects to gaming <laughs> Because they're used to being in a world where they are trained to watch and look. But the negatives, I think you can see the obvious. Again, back to that issue of media addiction. And frankly, just the reality that I think more and more are spending more time in front of a screen than perhaps is healthy. A couple other things. Um, computers, and because again this is a high-tech area, almost everybody here uses a computer, well we ask Millennials um, how many of you use a computer at work? 83% frankly I think that number is low only because some of the Millennials aren't in a job where they would use one, they might have been you don't use a computer very much if your entry-level job is at Burger King but you know I think eventually almost it's going to be close to 100% and then we ask them how much time do you spend on your computer at work? And the average was about 17 hours. And we went back and asked millennials, okay, do you use computers for personal time? And again, the average there was about 17 hours. So that's about 34 hours a week. Here's the bottom line. A typical millennial in America spends one-third of his or her waking hours on a computer. Now, computers are full of really good things, but that's a lot of time in front of a computer. First of all, it says that you're your... Um, Website for Living Hope better be the best possible website because they've been looking at a lot of websites, you know, and have seen a lot of bells and whistles. And it also means that that could be a very significant area of evangelism. Again, an opportunity to uh, send them to GodTube rather than YouTube to talk about uh, various kinds of outreaches they could have through social networking. But again, just think about this: the next generation, the future leaders of your church. You know, the people that were born in the 80s and 90s who are eventually going to be your leaders, they spend a third of their waking hours in front of a computer. There's some implications for that, obviously. Another issue as well, this is a generation that's never known life without a computer. They get most of their news and information from the Internet. They're not ones to pull open a newspaper look at a news magazine. You know, if it's not on the Internet, it probably doesn't matter. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. But here's the other part. They live in a world of instant information. They expect to have information at their fingertips and they have zero tolerance for delays. Now, think about the Christian life. I don't know about your Christian life, but it's kind of start and then stop. It's follow the Lord's leading, then Lord, what are you doing in my life? You know, It's uh, praying and not getting an answer right away. Well, that's a lot of the Christian life. Well, if you have kind of zero tolerance for delays... I mean, I saw a young person the other day, and they were standing in front of the microwave, and they were like this. I said, "What's up?" He said, "It's taking so long to microwave my drink." (laughs) I said, "Holy! (laughs) Whoa! The microwave is taking too long. Oh no!" Uh, Pastor, I leave you an email. I'm expecting five minutes later for you to respond with an email. Just think about what that means in terms of ministry, in terms of response. It's a very different kind of world that we live in. Well, let me wind this down. I've probably gone too long, but everybody seemed like they were paying attention here. Uh, <clears throat> Yeah, so the attention span was a little longer today, maybe because it's where we all live. But let me conclude by talking about worldview, because we've already talked about some of the implications of it. But what about the worldview, first of all, of the people that determine what you read, see, and hear? And I'll use news media, because I know I've got a couple of fellow news junkies here that like to know about the news. And the first study I'm going to look at actually goes back to the 1980s when I was at Georgetown University. A friend of mine, Robert Lichter at George Washington University, along with Stanley Rothman, did the most complete survey of the media elite. At that time it was ABC, NBC, CBS, Time, Newsweek, U.S. News and World Report, the Washington Post, the New York Times, United Press, International Associated Press. And he identified the 240 people of the media elite. These are the people that determine what you see, read, and hear. Now, this happened before CNN and before Fox News, and so things have changed a little bit, and there are new studies that I actually have included in my books about that. But this was the classic study, and he wanted to try to understand, first of all, where they stood politically, religiously, geographically, and all the rest. And so when he studied the media elite, he first of all found that they were liberal. I know that really shocks you. No, it shocked even them. Now, this is back in the time before we had third-party candidates, so it really either could vote Republican or Democrat. It's before you had the Ralph Nader's and Ross Pro's and things like that. So, um, it was still striking that 80% always voted for a Democratic candidate. A good example is in 1984, when 49 states... Uh, actually voted for Ronald Reagan and only the state of Minnesota voted for Walter Mondale and you had enormous percentage of Americans voted for Ronald Reagan still 80% of the media elite voted for Walter Mondale and it gives you a little bit of an idea how different they were from the rest of the country politically but the second one is probably more appropriate to what we need to talk about he also found that they were very secular That is, he found that 86% of the media elite seldom or never attend religious services. They don't go to church or synagogue. They don't know people that go to church or synagogue. They live in a very different world than the world of America today. Today, millions and millions of Americans will go to church. And yet, very, very few people that do the news ever go to church. Matter of fact, when we ask them for a religious affiliation, okay, that's not too hard. Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, 50% said, I don't know, I don't have any affiliation. That is so cut off from religion as to, again, maybe illustrate why the media always does such a poor job of trying to explain Christian values. They just simply don't understand what Christianity is all about. Liberal, secular, one more. Humanistic. In terms of their votes and in terms of their attitudes towards issues, for example, 90% supported a woman's so-called right to choose. Most of America right now, a majority of Americans identify themselves as pro-life. Last study came by Gallup poll, 51% call themselves pro-life. What that means, of course, varies from the individual. But here you have 90% say, no, I would, call, I would support abortion. Now imagine if you're a pro-life advocate and you're trying to get your message through to the rest of the country and the gatekeepers, 90% of them disagree, in many cases passionately disagree with your view. Geographically, it was kind of interesting as well. You live on the West Coast and here only 3% of the media elite were from California, for example, which is the most populous state in the Union. I'd imagine it was fractions of a percent that were from the state of Washington. Matter of fact, 40% of the media elite were from three states, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and New York. So again, very different than the rest of the country, both geographically, politically, spiritually, religiously, in terms of their values. So again, that doesn't mean we shouldn't pay attention to the media, but it does mean that we should have, what's that key word? Discernment, right? Well, I've been using television as an example. What do we know about television? Well, television is a little bit different for this reason. First of all um, Most of the news media are in New York. There's a few exceptions uh, CNN is in Atlanta, but most of it is eastern seaboard With television, yes, you have the television executives in New York But all the people that produce television programs there where in Southern California They're in Hollywood Burbank Beverly Hills that area and so first of all that's a little different second of all a lot of people in television today come from a Jewish background so they have some kind of religious upbringing which is a little different than the news media means really that they went to a bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah but now they're pretty much again disconnected from religious ideas and as you might imagine they were very liberal as well but here's the most striking one of all the institutions we could ever identify the people that produce television are the most secular people in the country as an institution, 93% seldom or never attend religious services, 45% had no religious affiliation. The only reason it wasn't 50% or 60% is someone said, well, I'm Jewish. Have you been to synagogue in the last year? No, but I'm Jewish. You know, that's, So you can see that that was having an impact. Now, that's what's so intriguing about it, because if you think about it, even though television producers and writers and scriptwriters and everyone are very secular you do get some christian sort of programs and what has happened is is there christians even in hollywood but they tend to pretty much gravitate towards these christian friendly studios And then produce things like um, Seventh Heaven, uh, Touched by an Angel, or in the old days, Home Improvement. And so you do have a few of those, but that makes the other institutions, the other studios, even more secular. And so again, I've said that we need to have a level of discernment. Does that mean you should never watch a television program? No, but it does mean that they are very different than the people sitting in this room. If a typical TV producer, script writer, actor were to come to your front door and say, look, I'd like to spend a few hours with your kids, you'd go, not a chance. But when you turn on the television set, they're spending time with their worldview, aren't they? Well, how do we see some of these worldviews in media? Real quickly, I'll just cover a few. We've talked about this idea of naturalism. You know, we see that uh, naturalistic worldview is there. And I mentioned the Cosmos series, Carl Sagan. The Cosmos is all there is, ever was, or ever will be. Well, here's a good example. You know, the Cosmos series was produced by public broadcasting. And then later, those videotapes were available to all sorts of public schools and ended up being the most watched educational video in the history of America. And it's giving you a naturalistic worldview. Then you can turn on other programs. I like to go to the Discovery Channel and watch those kinds of things. National Geographic, uh, Nova, all those. But again, you're going to have to have some discernment because you're going to get a worldview of what? Naturalism. Hedonism, you know, this idea that uh, life is full of fun and pleasure and excitement and pleasure is the ultimate good, kind of the Playboy philosophy. We certainly see that in a number of movies and films today. Uh, syncretism is a word I mentioned just the other day where it's the idea that all religions are basically the same and I can kind of mix and match my genetic, uh, I mean, excuse me, my media influences and things of that nature and create kind of this um, organic um, whole that's very different than anything that any major religion would even recognize but certainly we see a lot of syncretism I gave you some examples last uh, uh, night about some of that Uh, whatever works is good pragmatism you know the idea that well we just have to do whatever is going to be most effective in our world Um, it was funny that the movie Wall Street they have now a sequel that came out but in the first Wall Street you might remember that one of the themes was greed is good remember that Greed is good. Well, a lot of the major companies began to apply some of that when we had all the various scandals with Enron and many of the others. Existentialism. Existence precedes essence. There's no media, Jean-Paul Sartre and others. Or even this idea of postmodernism: there is no truth and just kind of this dark view of the world. One of the things we do at Pro Ministries every once in a while, and uh, Joe can probably appreciate that, is we go down to Deep Ellum. You know, Deep Ellum wasn't too far from Dallas Seminary, but it's about as different as Dallas Seminary as you can imagine. We're talking about lots of tattoos, lots of body piercing. We would speak at a place called Club Dada, and um, oftentimes interact on various philosophical issues. And then afterwards, there would be a band that would begin to play music, and I would listen to some of that dark... Uh, alternative music. It was so dark. You know, the life is full of despair. It was so hard to even listen to. And I finally realized the way I could kind of get my head around it is I said to some of the students, you know, I would have to at least agree in part with the lyrics that you are actually singing because apart from God, the world doesn't make sense. Apart from God's grace, it really is a very dark world. But again, this sort of postmodern idea. Well, let me just again mention some of the objections I get when I speak to this issue. One objection is, well, hey, that's reality. Well, I would suggest to you that 200,000 acts of violence, 12,000 uh, televised homicide that's not reality. Well, it's just killing time. You know, and again, I'm all for, you know, sitting down and watching a TV program, going to a movie, just having fun, you know, whatever, reading a book for fun. That's not the point I'm making is that somewhere along the line, we need to begin to get some control onto what I think is this media storm that is affecting us and our families. Hey, it won't affect me, but I think I've shown you some pretty good evidence that it really does have an impact on your worldview. It makes sense that it would. Hey, no one will know. You know, I'll go to that website, but nobody will know. Well, it leaves cookies on your computer. And, you know, it might be even possible that you can fool some of the people some of the time. Maybe all the people some of the time. I don't know. Maybe you could fool all the people all the time. But God will know. And finally, it's just entertainment. And if you've heard me say, no, you need to now go out there and we're going to have an, at the campfire tonight, we're going to take all your iPods and your iPhones and your Blackberries and you bring your telephones, we're going to burn them at the campfire tonight. No, that's not what I'm saying. You know, I'm in the world of media, and I think it's important to recognize that certainly media can be well used. But I do believe that we as believers need to understand that it is having an impact on our lives. Again, if you want uh, to go to the Probe website, you'll see quite a number of articles that we've written over the years on film and television and music, on the influence of the media, much more. So again, I hope that you'll take the time to maybe... uh, Uh, Avail yourself of some of those resources, and we'll give you that opportunity to find out a little bit more about that But let me close this in prayer But again as we break into our groups a little bit later I want you to uh, see that I've got given you an opportunity to talk about this media storm How you think maybe the media is influencing people around you? How should the church address these issues and what kind of worldviews are you seeing promoted in the world? Those would be all things that we certainly would want to try to help you answer And I think we'll have a very good and rousing discussion so should i close this in prayer i will do so father we thank you for a chance as we are away from all these media influences in the midst of your wonderful creation here at this camp to uh, reevaluate maybe some changes we would make in our lives we pray that you would give us the wisdom and most importantly the discernment to know how to deal with the influences that these are having in our lives we pray that we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind in Christ Jesus, rather than being conformed to this world. That we would not be taken captive by philosophy and empty deception, but instead we would take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we pray this in Your Son's name, and pray this in Christ's name. Amen. With all of the talk about, um, oh, sorry. With all the talk about uh, the media and the media influences.
0: I don't know, what what is the best way that you recommend to sort of combat that? Not just the discernment, not just the, you know, don't watch certain things, but
1: I guess what I'm looking for is can you give us an answer that includes replacement? Okay, very good. A couple of things I might suggest. Let's start with television first. I would say that if you're a parent, I might re-evaluate the location of your television set, because for some of us, it becomes just too easy to just flop in front of a television set and go, you know, and start going through, right? You know, and that was one thing that Suzanne and I did, partially by accident. Uh, our television set was sort of where our dining room was. There were no chairs there, so really, if the kids had to even watch television, they either had to drag a chair in or. Sit on the floor, uh, and it just and it all and we also had things that covered it over, so you had to sort of physically open it up, and you know and it just it was it was a little bit more difficult. I know of some uh, people that have actually had the television set on wheels and they put it in a closet. I mean, that'd be a little hard now with these flat screen TVs, but in the old days there were just things to reevaluate. I certainly, for those of you that have kids, I would really strongly suggest that you have to th- think really hard before I'd let them have a television set in their room or even a computer in the room, unless you have a lot of um, various kinds of protections, because away from any kind of eyes, all sorts of things can happen. Now, you said about replacement. I think the best thing we can do is maybe use some of the newer technology to uh, get us away from, to wean us away from, say, television or from various kinds of Internet sites, Um, because now I don't have to necessarily always carry a book with me. I've got an iPad, and even Suzanne knows last night I was reading a book on my iPad. So I'm using one of technology to replace another one so I'm reading more than I've ever read and yet the technology has allowed me to do so um, as um Joe and I have pointed out a couple of the kind of theological books we like to read. You could just, you know, get backache from just putting them in a backpack or, carry, you know, some of these systematic theologies. Now I carry around on my computer. I think the last time I figured out, I probably have a thousand different books on my computer. And that allows me to do a lot more reading. So I've used one form of technology to replace another. And I think your point's well taken. Displacement is an issue. Uh, people that really want to be successful, you've heard the phrase before, readers are leaders. And so I think we need to get back to reading the word. And that's certainly God's word, but also other words that are out there and get away from always watching visual images So I think there are some things that you can do evaluate the location of your television set Evaluate the quantity and quality of the TV For example, you might get a TV guide and decide which programs you're going to watch and only watch those programs I know some parents have actually had little coupons I'll create this is worth a half an hour of television You can spend it however you want, but you know there are so many hours the TV's not on or there's certain hours of the day, the TV's not on. You can make a covenant with yourself to say, you know, when I get into a car, I've always turned on the radio, but this time I won't turn on the radio. But I mean, I think it takes some deliberate steps to really begin to say, what do I want to do that is going to make me the person God wants me to be? And I think that uh, those people that make those positive steps are the ones that are going to rise to the top in our society because we have a whole mass of human beings that just sit in front of television sets or search internet and and essentially wasting enormous amounts of their time. And they were not going to be the leaders of the 21st century. So if you want to be a leader, you want to make a difference, make some positive steps in that way. That's a quick, quick answers, but I've got whole articles on the website that you can read in detail, if you'd like, about what as parents you could do that might be helpful. Another question real quickly. Maybe one more for now before we break for... Take one over there.
0: So with all this media onslaught, how can we encourage, like, it's hard enough for me to have a quiet time. How can we encourage quiet time or quietness?
1: Right. Uh, And I think that is a fundamental question. I sort of alluded to it. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, If you fill your day full of media, where's the time for the Lord to speak to you? You know, One of the things Suzanne and I have done, first of all, we walk all the time, but it's a time in which we do communication, and even if we walk separately, it's a time in which it gets you away from that. There, It's almost impossible in the electrified homes that we have today to escape from the media. So when's the time for the Lord to speak to you? When's the time for you to have a quiet time? And I think you have to be very deliberate about scheduling that. Maybe you can actually schedule it into your day timer or your, um, whatever it is, your notebook or whatever you're using to actually make sure that that actually is taking place. When I was in college, one of the things I did was we used to have one of those calendars they would always give you and I always made a covenant with myself that I could not cross off that day until I'd had a devotional time or a quiet time. But do something that gets you back into that. There are, the forces of the world have always been a problem. When Paul wrote that we should not be conformed to this world but transformed by the renewing of our minds, I mean, recognize he's writing that in Romans 12 to Christians in Rome that did not have television, did not have an eye- did not have an iPhone, did not have the internet, did not have anything uh, that was even closely resembling any of the kind of technology we take for granted today. And he was still concerned about how the culture was going to conform them rather than they to think biblically. So if it was true in the first century, how much more true is it in the 21st century? But I'm not one to give up and say, well, we're just going to have to give in to the media and just give up on our ability. But I do recognize that you're going to have instead, it used to be we all sort of had this sort of bell-shaped curve of individuals, but now I'm seeing it's separating off. You've got the really smart kids who really are focused and really know what they're doing, Then you've got this massive kids that are just kind of going with the pop culture. And that's kind of what's going to happen, I suspect, in the millennial generation. You're going to have some that are really going to be committed, and they'll be both Christians and non-Christians, although there's a disproportionate number of Christians in that smaller group that read and study and listen to God, but also there's some non-Christians there also as well that are still understanding the importance of study and personal discipline and all that then you have this mass of kids which unfortunately are not going to be very effective in their lives and i'm sad for that but let's make sure we get our kids at least in that group and part of that is for all of us to begin to understand the importance of studying god's word and understanding that quiet time is there and you remember howard hendricks i remember howard hendricks at dallas seminary One time he was following this one guy because he was just having all sorts of trouble trying to be effective in ministry. And finally, Dr. Hendricks uh, said, you know what you are missing? He says, what? Think time. You're just filled your life with busyness. And I can understand it because my life is much busier than I'd like it to be, but that's the way media is in this world. And we all need more think time. And uh, one advantage of the Christian camping, we get some more think time, right?